Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews 10, beginning in the 19th verse. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. With this passage, we come to a transition in the Hebrew epistle. This passage acts as a sort of bridge, if you please, to connect the doctrinal section which has gone before with the practical section in the remainder of the Hebrew letter. The apostle moves from the exposition of his principal theme in these verses to its application. And isn't this always the way that the New Testament writers teach the Word of God? They first lay out the doctrine, the foundation of what the Lord has done for us. And it's on that basis that these writers then instruct us to certain activities and behaviors in a practical way. In other words, doctrine comes before duty, grace comes before godliness, belief comes before behavior. You see, we don't work in order to win the favor of God, but it's because of what he's done for us that these Bible writers then apply those truths to us and encourage us, exhort us to live accordingly. So what he's doing in this passage is he's asking the question, how does the priesthood of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death, which has been the theme of the book of Hebrews thus far, that he's developed at length, how does that truth apply to our lives right now? Now, like a skilled attorney, the apostle has presented his case in the previous chapters for the superiority of the new covenant to the old. That is what we have in the church is so much better than what they had under the old law. Of course, the Jewish people that received this letter at first might have said, it's really not. It's sort of anticlimactic because there are not the trappings and adornments. There is not the elaborate form and ceremony and pomp and circumstance and pageantry that existed under the old law. I mean, we don't have any bells and whistles, any robes any special decorations like the tabernacle did. It's really kind of bland, they might have said. Acapella singing, public prayer, the reading and exposition of Holy Scripture, they would say, what do you mean it's better than the law? But the reason it's better is because it is the culmination of everything that the law pointed towards. It's the fulfillment. The law, of course, was preparatory. God never intended it to be permanent. The ceremonies of Judaism were the groundwork, if you please, that 
like a shadow pointed toward the real tree. And Jesus Christ is the anticipated Messiah that the Old Testament pointed to. And since he has come, we are living in the sunshine of Christ's finished work, not in the anticipation. We don't look forward in prospect at the first coming of Christ. We look back in retrospect, my friends, at a fact accomplished. And we are living in the reality. So the apostle has presented his case for the superiority of the new covenant to the old. And now I want you to see the word therefore in our reading, verse 19, having therefore, brethren. Now that connective word signals the beginning of the application section that will carry us again to the end of the epistle. And maybe you say this morning, preacher, I've been waiting for this. I mean, we've been studying Hebrews, learning for a long time, and I want something that applies to my life. Perhaps you've thought several times as we've studied through Hebrews, preacher, you need to preach on marriage or how to handle your money, Bible economics, or child rearing, or what's going on in society. Why are you preaching about the old law and going into these details about Christ and his priesthood and the benefits we have from that? Because that doesn't really seem relevant to where we live. Maybe somebody has had that thought. And I would just remind you today, dear friends, that nothing is more vital and important for us than doctrine. For if you don't have doctrine, then it doesn't matter how much you say about child rearing or parenting or marriage or money matters. You really don't have the incentive. It's like trying to run your car on air without any fuel in the tank. It doesn't work, you know. And the fact is, dear friends, that until we understand what the Lord's done for us, we really don't have the motivation and the strength and the incentive to live like Christians should in our homes. You know the best thing that husbands need to be good husbands in a marriage? They need to know what the Lord has done for his church. For husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, right? The sacrificial kind of love. The best thing that wives need is to see how the church is to respond to Christ. We need doctrine in order to live accordingly. That's the point. And with this word, therefore, then the apostle says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, we have one of the most exciting passages of Scripture in all the Bible, for it teaches us that you and I have the privilege today of doing what only one person had the privilege to do in the Old Testament. We can come into the very presence of the living God. And it's really a mind-boggling thought. I wonder this morning, as you've assembled here at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church for Public Worship, if you are conscious of the fact that you are, in fact, in the very presence of the living God. I think it's common for people to think about who we will see at church. We're coming into the presence of one another. And we're going to learn today that that's a part of church life. That's a part of worship. As you saw in verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke into love and to good works. Certainly fellowship with others and a concern for others is part of church life. But first and foremost, my beloved, in worship, I think it's important for us to remember we are coming into the presence of God himself. Let us draw near with a true heart. 
Now, of course, under the old law, the common people could not draw near to God. You remember at Mount Sinai, when God gave Moses the law, the people stood at a distance. They kept their distance from God because the God of Sinai is a holy God. And if so much as a beast were to brush against the mountain, it was to be shot with an arrow, thrust through with a dart. In other words, that was a holy scene. Even Moses was told not to come close to God until he took his shoes off of his feet. You remember? Remove your shoes from your feet, for the ground whereon you're standing is holy ground. And it's as we have a concept of the holiness of God, as he is revealed in the old law, that we understand the difficulty that we face today, that because he's so holy and pure and righteous and just, sinful men do not have the opportunity or the right to come into his presence you would have a better chance getting into the Oval Office to see the president than you would to come into the presence of the Holy God. And my friends, I don't have any hopes of ever getting in to see the president. I'm just too common, too ordinary. It's out of my league. And I want to tell you, God is out of our league because we are sinners. As hard as it is to see the mayor, you have to talk to the secretary and the assistant secretary and a schedule an appointment three months in advance. As hard as it is to see the governor or the superintendent of schools, I mean, powerful people protect themselves with layers of protection, don't they? And you have to jump through several hoops in order to get a hearing, get an audience. I'm saying to you today, my friends, that you and I have the privilege of coming into the most holy place and encountering in intimate fellowship and communion the God of the universe. And that is an amazing thought to me. Are you a widow here today? Are you living on a fixed income? Are you a young married couple? Are you a single adult? Are you a young person here this morning? I'm telling you, dear friends, even though the world at large does not know that you exist, I mean, most of us are relatively unimportant people so far as the world's standards are concerned. God admits your presence. He admits your approach. He knows who you are, and you can talk to him. And you can come close to God. Now, of course, God bids us to come, doesn't he? He desires fellowship with us. And so this is a wonderful passage. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest of all. That privilege, again, that was only the high priests, and that only on one day a year is now open to you and me. Notice, then, the theme of this passage is verse 22, let us draw near, draw near. You may notice the contrast of this thought of drawing near in verse 22 with the thought of drawing back in verse 39 of chapter 10. He says, let us not draw back unto perdition. Don't shrink away, but come close. That's the idea. Now this thought of drawing nigh to God has been one of the writer's favorite themes already as he's urged these ambivalent Hebrew Christians to draw close to God previously in the Hebrew letter. What he's telling them is that the solution to your difficulties lay not in a surrender to the pressures of persecution. You know, many of these Hebrew Christians were suffering tremendous opposition to their newfound faith. They had left the tried and true religion of the Jews, which had been in place for 1,500 years, for this newfangled 
Christianity because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised, and they had made the jump, and it had cost them social pressure. Many of them, as we're going to look see later in this chapter, had had their goods spoiled. You've endured the spoiling of your goods, he says in verse 34. Many of them had, were made a gazing stock. That is, people talked about you behind your back, and when you looked, you could see them looking at you, and then they looked away. You knew they were talking about you. You were a spectacle. You were suffering recrimination, the reprisals of your newfound faith. My friends, if you've ever felt sort of on the outside, like you're being talked about or like you're not being included in the in-group, if you've ever suffered for your faith, for your religion, felt like you were left out because of some of your moral and ethical convictions and your theological beliefs, I dare say that's a real pressure. You begin to ask yourself the question, is it worth it? I mean, after all, I mean, why can't I just be happy like everybody else? Why do I have to be talked about as an old fuddy-duddy, you know, peculiar people? You know, why can't you be like everybody else? Why are you different? And the pressure is tremendous. And because of that, these people were tempted to surrender to the pressure and to go back to the law. Some of them had lost their jobs. Their friends and family had turned against them. It had caused disruption in the home life of many of these early Christians. But the solution to their difficulties, the writer says, is not to surrender and defeat to the pressure, but it's to make use of the incredible privileges that God has provided you and me to live every moment of our lives in close and intimate communion with him. The solution to your pressure, my friends, is not to buckle to the world's intimidating tactics, but it's to draw closer to God. Draw nigh to God. That's the biblical injunction. That's what you need and that's what I need this morning. I hope this is making sense. The best thing for you in your life is to live closely to God. If you want strength to stand firmly when there are so many temptations around, stay close to God. If you need encouragement and you're looking at what's happening in the world around us and you're losing heart, my friends, get closer to God. Let us draw near. And the wonderful thing is you can. <laughs> because your great high priest has opened the way of access to common ordinary sinners like us to draw near to God. So we've already seen this thought of drawing near to God previously in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Do you remember? He said, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. That tells us that we draw nigh to God in prayer. You see the same thing in chapter 7, verse 19. The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Hebrews 7, 25. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. And how do we draw near to God? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, by one spirit, we have access to one Father through Jesus Christ. Notice the Trinity in that verse. We have access to the Father by the Spirit, by virtue of the merit of Jesus Christ. So you and I can draw nigh to God in prayer. And now in our text, and later in the Hebrew epistle, he's going to tell us that we draw nigh to God in worship. Not only in prayer. Now how important is prayer in your life? It's vital. Prayers is essential to our spiritual health as breathing is to our natural health. 
If you've ever had any respiratory distress and you've needed oxygen, you know what a blessing it is to get oxygen. And I'm telling you, prayer is that crucial in your spiritual life. Why starve yourself of heavenly oxygen? By restraining prayer before God. It's vitally important that we pray regularly. I want to encourage everyone here to pray every day. It wouldn't hurt to start the day with prayer. Ere you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? And then pray those arrow prayers periodically. Pray without ceasing, like Nehemiah did when the king said, Why is your countenance sad? Before he answered, he says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. He said, Lord, help me to say it right. Send up one of those little arrow prayers toward heaven. You know, those short, pithy, yet right-to-the-point kind of prayers. Live in an attitude of prayer. My friends, pray before meals. Don't forget to thank God for the things that you tend to take for granted. The food on your table, the shelter over your head, a reasonable degree of health, air conditioning for hot days, heat for cool and chilly nights, you know, companionship, friends, sunshine, azaleas, singing birds, right? Singing birds. Don't forget to be thankful for the many blessings God has given you and eyes to see it because heaven above is softer blue and earth around is sweeter green than Christless eyes have ever seen. You know, the person who sees it all through what God has done for us in Christ has a different perspective on life than the unbeliever who just takes it all for granted. Let us not be like that. Draw nigh to God in prayer. It's so vitally important. Do you have burdens? Cast your burdens on the Lord and He will sustain you. Don't forget to pray. How vitally important prayer is. It's the lifeline of the child of grace to heaven. My friends, it's also just as important to draw nigh to God in worship, and that's the theme of this passage. As verse 25 tells us in our text, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Now, the early church, they lived their individual lives, but they had times when they assembled together with other believers in public worship. And church life is just as essential to your spiritual health as prayer is personally. Worship is an opportunity to come close to God. And I hope today when you leave here that you will leave with a keen awareness that you've been in the presence of God, that you've had an opportunity to get close to Him and to talk to Him and to hear from Him. For the sermon this morning, if I'm truly preaching the Word, is not just Brother Mike's weekly homily. This is the Word of the living God. The Apostle Paul commended the saints at Thessalonica because when you heard the word which was preached of us, you heard it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of the living God. And I think it's vitally important for us to come to worship with the attitude of Cornelius when he told Peter, we are all here before God, ready to hear whatsoever the Lord has commanded you. We come to hear Jehovah speak, as the hymn writer put it. To hear the Savior's voice, thy face in favor, Lord, we seek. Now let our hearts rejoice. Public worship is one of the premier resources that God has given us to help us live the Christian life. And my friends, here's the theme of Hebrews. Because of what our high priest has done and because of the sacrifice that he made when he was our substitute on Calvary and because he has fulfilled the law, and now we're living in the covenant of grace, the new covenant that's written in our hearts. And now we can worship and serve God based upon the merit of Jesus Christ, the finished work of the Savior. My beloved, we have the privilege of public worship. You can come into the very presence of God.
It's really mind-blowing to me this morning. You see this thought of drawing nigh to God further in the next chapter, chapter 11, where chapter 10, that's our text. Chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he that, watch this, cometh to God must believe that he is. What does that mean, coming to God? He that cometh to God. Well, that's what we've done this morning. He said, I'm going to church. Well, really, you've come to God this morning. Now, this church, Bethel Church is not your God. I'm not. The pastor's not your God. You know, even the Bible is not your God. But we've come to meet the Lord in his house. We have the wonderful promise and reassurance that where two or three are gathered in his name, he will be in our midst. Matthew 18, 20. I've proven that to be true, haven't you? You know, some of the old timers that I remember would say things like this. They would say, we had a great deal of God's presence with us at church this morning. You know, the Lord was there. The Lord was in the place. You ever heard people talk like that? And you say, I looked around in the congregation. I didn't see the Lord there. You can't see him with your physical eyes. But you, I'll tell you, when he's here, God's children know it, don't they? And he may only be here communing with one person. I mean, one person may be the only one in the whole congregation that has come with the right attitude. He says, if any man will hear my voice, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. Notice the individuality of that. If any person, one person. I pray today that many of us will experience the presence of God. But the fact is, whether we're aware of it or not, we are in his presence. You say, well, Brother Goins, aren't we always in the presence of God? Indeed, God is omnipresent. And everywhere we go and everything we do, we're always in the presence of God, but in a special sense. He has pledged to meet with his people at the mercy seat. That's where he encountered the high priest who represented the people. You know, he met with him face to face. I would imagine the night before the Day of Atonement, the high priest must have had trouble sleeping as the anticipation and excitement and perhaps fear and dread of what an encounter with God would mean the next day. Jewish tradition tells us they tied a string or a rope onto the high priest in case God smote him dead in the holiest of all. They could pull him out, you know. I mean, he was taking his life in his hands to approach so nigh to the Creator God. A puny man. You say, well, he was a priest. Yeah, but he was still a sinner. That's why he had to offer sacrifice first for his own sins, then for the sins. He first had to offer some blood on his own behalf. You know, I try to pray like that. This morning while Brother Gaskey is leading our public prayer, I try to pray. He said, Lord, bless our pastor. I try to say, oh, Lord, I am a great sinner. I need cleansing before I can stand in front of these people and handle your word. I need the guidance of the Holy Spirit to do it right. Give me a ready turn of thought. Give me a keen mind and a tongue of utterance and a warm heart. And use me as an instrument. I'm such an earthen vessel that I know that I could easily mess it up. You know, my voice cracks. My mind wanders. I'm dull and boring. Brother Dollar Drydust in the pulpit preaching for us this morning. You know. And I say, Lord, please touch me and use me. I need unction from on high. And I can imagine that that high priest, as he went in to represent the nation before God, must have done so with a certain degree of trepidation. But yet we don't have to come with trepidation. He says, let us come boldly 
to the throne of grace. You can come with confidence. You don't have to stand back and keep your distance and say, well, someday I think, I think I'll get close. You don't have to sit on the back pew, in other words, when it comes to getting close to God. No offense intended to the folks that got the preferred seats this morning. You can come into the very throne room of the Almighty, and that is precisely what happens every time you kneel in prayer. And that is what happens when you come to sit on these pews with the saints. In the name of Jesus Christ, you and I, my friends, have drawn nigh to God. We've come to God, and I hope we've come by faith. Later in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 18, he's going to talk about coming to Mount Zion. He says, you're not come to Mount Sinai, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the living God, to an innumerable company of angels, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That is, you've come to do something here that is happening at the same time in heaven. It's a wonderful passage. In fact, I don't want to preach it before I get to it. Well, I do want to, but I'm not going to. Hebrews 12 equates the worship of the saints on earth with what is going on in heaven right now, and it connects the two. My beloved, what we're doing here is really mysterious. One of the hymn writers picks that up when he writes, From every stormy wind that blows, from every swelling tide of woes, you know that hymn. One verse in that hymn talks about the fact that when we come to the mercy seat to worship, we are communing in a mystic, sweet communion with other saints across the world and in heaven, the disembodied souls. Worship, my beloved, is the business of heaven. It's what happens there. And by the way, if you think that'll be boring, may I say you will be mesmerized by the worship of heaven. The music will be enthralling. It'll be perpetually new. The vision of the Lamb will not be obscured. We won't see through a glass darkly then. It'll be face to face. Heaven will be a beautiful world, more beautiful than Augusta National. You know, I was watching some of the Masters tournament yesterday and looking at the landscaped fairways and greens and the beautiful flowers and trees and I thought, my, what a garden spot, what a beautiful place. I'm telling you, that is Lilliputian compared to heaven. How beautiful heaven must be. Well, someday I won't sing how beautiful it must be. I'll sing how beautiful it is. And you will too. And you've never seen anything on this earth like it. Did you know the sweetest joys and pleasures that are available to us on this earth are meant to be mere foretastes of the exceeding joys and pleasures and bliss of that pure world. The love of a wife or husband. The hope of a little child. The song of the bird. The excitement and revival of springtime. All of this presupposes like a small-scale representation, a microcosm of the bliss and glories of heaven. It's simply meant to whet our appetites and to help us to remember that something better, the best, is yet to come. You think there's anything better than your best days in this world? Absolutely, my friends. Multiplied a thousandfold, the best is yet to come. And when we're worshiping right now, we're doing precisely the same thing that is ongoing around the very throne of God in heaven right now. In a sense, we're practicing for heaven. And I want to I get better with practice, don't you? I want to be more consistent I don't want to lose the opportunities. I thought as Brother Gaskey was praying and I was about to preach this morning, I thought about the fact that I'm getting older and who knows how much longer any of us have. None of us know that. 
But I thought someday I will preach my last sermon. I don't know when that will be. And every opportunity is a precious privilege. And I don't want to waste it by giving a half-hearted effort. And that should be our attitude when we come to worship, my friends. We're drawing nigh to God. Now notice this thought then of drawing near to God through worship. An outline arises neatly from the text this morning. Notice the three participles, having, in our reading this morning, having boldness to enter into the holiest, verse 19, and having, verse 21, a high priest over the house of God, and verse 22, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. So three times he uses the word having. This is something we have, something we possess, right? Having. These are our resources, three resources. He, he mentions the three resources that we have right now. Not that you'll get in the future. This is something you have right now. Having, that is, it's a present participle. This is something in your present possession. Having a high priest. Having boldness to enter into the holiest and having our hearts sprinkled. And then on the basis of the three resources that we have, you have three exhortations, all signaled by the expression, let us. Three times in this passage, he tells us three things we have. Then he says, let us draw near, verse 22. Let us hold fast, verse 23. And let us consider one another, verse 24. Three lettuces. So this morning, I'm bringing you a message from my garden. I'm bringing you three lettuces. And I want you to enjoy these lettuces on the basis of your resources, the things that you have. Notice the three having statements. What do we have today? And he's simply reiterating our blessings. Here's what the Lord has given us. These are the resources at your disposal. You presently possess these three items. First, we have unrestricted access into the presence of God. You may come into his presence, my friends, uninhibited. You have unfettered access to God today, says verse 19, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, somebody says, you can't come into this place, you know, because you're not authorized. You ever seen a sign at a, maybe a museum that says no admittance? You know, it's cordoned off. You know, there's a rope that keeps regular people from getting too close to the priceless artifact that's on display. You can view it on the other side of the rope, but you can't get too close. You don't have access. Well, my friends, here's the good news of the gospel. You have unrestricted, unlimited, uninhibited, unfettered access into the very present. You do. I'm talking to you this morning. You can draw near to God. Now, of course, that wasn't true again in the Old Testament. What was it that separated God's presence, symbolized by the Shekinah cloud and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat? What is it that separated the presence of God from the average worshiper, from the Jewish person? The, the big veil, right? The big curtain. And the rabbis say that the veil of the temple was so tightly woven that two teams of oxen pulling in opposite directions could not tear it apart. But here's the wonderful thing that happened at the cross. One of the crucifixion miracles, there are three of them, 
miracles that happened while Jesus was being crucified. One of the crucifixion miracles is recorded in Matthew 27, verse 50, that says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and bowed his head and gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple was rent, that means torn in twain, torn in two, from the top to the bottom. Now, two teams of oxen pulling in opposite directions could not tear it apart, but supernaturally it tears. And notice it doesn't tear from the bottom to the top because this isn't something man did. He did not grab one end of it and another fellow grab another and tear it from the bottom to the top. This tore from the top to the bottom, opening access into the Holy of Holies. And you say, Brother Mike, what does all of this symbolize? Notice our text says in verse 20, By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Do you know what that veil represented? It represented the human body of Jesus Christ. And when his body was pierced, when his body was broken for me, his flesh, his brow was crowned with thorns and the blood gushed from his head. When his hands were nailed and his feet were nailed and his side was pierced with the sword. When his body was broken for me, his flesh was torn. It was that act that opened access for you and me. It was the death of Jesus Christ, in other words, that opened up a new and living way into the presence of God for you. You can come before God not because you're a good person, in other words, or because you've lived a good life, but you come before God only by virtue of the merit of Jesus. It's only because of what he's done. But this word, a new and living way, suggests the thought of a ramp or an entrance. You may have noticed that in sports contests, one team will leave their locker room and they come through a little tunnel, a ramp, you know. And then they burst onto the scene and they run out to the cheers of their fans. The other team comes on their ramp. And then when they go back into their secret quarters, they go to the ramp to their own locker rooms. You know, that's the idea here. Jesus has opened access to us by a new and living way. He's opened the ramp. And you can come into the presence of God. My friends, you can appear before him as you come through the merits of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, you have unrestricted access to God. You can do again what only the high priest could do on, in the Old Testament. He could only do it once a year. You can do it every day, several times a day. The way of access to God is forever opened. And notice he says we can come without fear of rejection or without hesitation. Have you ever had a, a pet that perhaps kept his distance from you? Maybe you'd been upset with something that he had done. And if you're like me, you'd made the mistake of raising your voice or maybe even throwing something at, well, we won't go there. <laughs> but have you ever had a dog or a cat that just, you know, you just planted new flowers, you'd spent a small fortune to buy spring flowers at Lowe's and you'd planted them in your bushes and your cat or your dog maybe dug some of them up and they were wilting and dying and they never did quite live up to their billing because of that. And the animal knew you were displeased and kept his distance from you for a while. Perhaps even if you've ever seen a child that was abused, you know, they're afraid to get too close to dad or to mom or to a teacher or to a coach or whatever that has been too hard on them and they uh, keep their distance, they shy away. You don't have to shy away from God. That's the point. You can come with boldness. This word boldness interestingly means confidence, as we stated. 
It also means freedom of speech or frankness in speaking. Here is a very powerful, important person. And little granddaughter comes and jumps on his lap, on granddaddy's lap. And she's not inhibited in the least. She just plants kisses on his cheeks and grabs his face and contorts it. And she speaks to him and, you know, her gibberish and uh, he dotes upon her and they just have a very intimate relationship. Whereas a new young man that has been hired for the company might be afraid to even get close to his office, you know, and certainly nervous when it comes to speak to him. I'm saying you can come like that little child into the presence of God. You can. You don't have to be afraid. Now, that does not mean we can come with a cavalier attitude and just tell him off and speak disrespect. We always ought to come with reverence, right? Reverence is always in style because he's God, I tell you. I think of that quote from the Chronicles of Narnia series when the Pevensey children ask Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, is the lion Aslan safe? Can you think of a lion that's safe? And the, Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion, I tell you. He's the king. He said, but he's good. He's not safe. I mean, he could tear you limb from limb. But he is good. And it's the cross that teaches us that our God's not only a God of holiness, but he's a God of grace, a God of love, a God of goodness and mercy. Right? Never forget the cross. And that's how we can come into the presence of God, through the cross. Jesus has purchased that right for you and me. Because we have unrestricted access. You can speak frankly to God. Come with boldness, frankness of speech. Freedom of speech. Speak freely. Are you burdened? Tell it to Jesus. I must tell Jesus all of my troubles. I must tell Jesus. Don't hesitate. You say, well, I'm not important enough. You're not coming because you're important or unimportant. You're coming through Christ. He's bought you that right. And that brings us to the next wonderful truth. Not only do you have unrestricted access into the presence of God, here's something else you have. You have personal representation before God. Although the way is open, you say, I'm not important in and of myself to speak to God. Well, here's the good news. You not only have an open way of access to God, but you have a representative standing before the throne of God ready to speak for you. Notice verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God. You have a high priest there. An advocate that will help sinful people like you and me to get audience with God. The blood has been shed, the way has been opened, and now the high priest that made the sacrifice is ready to welcome you there and to speak on your behalf to the Father. And if I knew the governor's son, and we were close friends, I think I would have hope that my message could get through just because I had access to someone close to the governor. And I'm telling you, we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ, a high priest. That's something you have. You say, what good is that to me? Well, because our offerings of worship are so tainted with imperfection, right? Does your voice ever crack when you sing? You ever hit a note sharp and, or flat instead of right on key? I do. Do I ever stumble over my words as I'm offering my weekly sacrifice through pulpit ministry to the Lord as I'm preaching my sermon and I'm saying, Lord, this is, I'm doing this as an act of gratitude to you. Do I ever stumble and fumble and bumble my way through the sermon? Absolutely. 
But you know, it's like the little boy whose dad was coming home after being away with the military. His mother said, Daddy's coming home from deployment. And the little boy was so excited to see his dad that he hadn't seen in a good while that he went out and gathered a whole bunch of wildflowers to make a bouquet for his dad. And he brought them to his mother. He said, these are for Daddy when he gets home. This is my welcome home present. But she noticed that with all of the beautiful wildflowers, he had also gathered a whole bunch of weeds. So unbeknownst to the little boy, the mother picked out the weeds until all that was left was a beautiful arrangement of flowers. And she presented it to the father when he arrived at home and said, this is from your son. And I'm saying that's exactly what our high priest does to our prayers and to our worship is he takes out the things that are unworthy to appear before God and he presents it to the father and the father is as pleased with it as he would be of an angel's song. And then the third thing we have is in having, he says, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And I think he's simply saying here that we are completely cleansed from sin. Notice there's an internal and an external aspect to this. Our hearts sprinkled, that's internal, from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water, that's outward, external. But I think what he's saying is that what Jesus did on the cross has purchased us not only in heart and soul, but also in body. And we've been entirely cleansed. The word for washed in this verse is the word luo, which is used in John 13, 10, that says, whosoever is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. The first word washed in that verse is luo, the second's nipto. The first speaks of an entire cleansing, the second of a partial cleansing. Once you've had a bath, you don't need another bath. You can just wash your hands before the meal, partially, you see. He that is washed can wash his feet now. Peter said, wash me all over. He said, no, if the Lord has already quickened you, you've been born again, you've had the washing of regeneration, you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, that not only makes your heart pure, but it guarantees the resurrection of your body one day. That's what he's saying here. We have cleansing from sin. Now, it would be one thing to have a way of access and a high priest there. You say, but preacher, I have nothing to wear. <laughs> right? No, okay, you're going to visit the governor or the president. And you have an invitation and an open way of access to go. You're, you're permitted to come. And you have the son who's your best friend there ready to welcome you. But you say, I don't have a thing to wear. Any of you sisters ever said that? I don't have a thing to wear. All I've got are t-shirts and jeans and tennis shoes. I'd, I'd like to dress up if I'm going to see a dignitary I need to be cleansed. I need to take a bath. He says, you have not only access to God and a high priest there to meet you and to speak for you as your advocate to the king, but you have your heart cleansed and your body washed with pure water. You've been cleansed from sin through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. On the basis of those three possessions and resources, he says, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider one another. And the clock has beat me this morning. And instead of holding you beyond the time, I'm going to drop a couple of cars off of this train this morning. We'll pick them up on our next run. <laughs> I want you to remember, though, that you have access to God this week. And if you have access to God, why, pray tell, would we neglect such a priceless privilege and blessing by forsaking the assembling of ourselves together? 
Instead of seeing church then as a duty and a drudgery, we see it as a wonderful opportunity to get close to God. And I hope that's been your sense as you leave this place this morning. Lord, I've been in your presence. And I can think of a few things that will help you more to persevere beneath the pressure and to stay faithful to Christ than to draw nigh to God in personal prayer and in public worship like you've done this morning.